This is Katie. And this is Sarah. We're two friends who are kind of obsessed with a little of this and a lot of that and everything in between. Welcome back to Kind of Obsessed. I'm Sarah. And I'm Katie. Hey, Katie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? You know what? I'm even better because it is so wonderful to get to see you. There are so few times during this entire situation that we get to actually be six feet apart. Um, and so this is the highlight of my week. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm flattered. Well, thank you. And I know that you've been in Fire Island with the kids and the hubs. Yeah. And so how has that been? It's been great. I mean, I'm back in the city for a few days um, to do some work stuff and to, you know, hang out with you. And um, but it's been great. I mean, we've been going to Fire Island for a handful of years and uh, really look forward to it every year. Um, And it's a great vacation spot and um, very relaxing. As somebody who's been going there for years, have you seen a difference in during this whole situation? Is it like is there like a pall over the... The island? Not more so. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> Is it feel... normally very tense <laughs> when you exactly. go there? <laughs> it's more normally very tense. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a little different. I think everybody is a little different. Mm. Um, but overall, I mean, it's it's like a beach atmosphere. So like everybody Chill. is still, yeah, wearing masks when they're not like on the beach uh, and it's, you know, windy or whatever. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean, it feels somewhat normal, but there's still mask wearing. There's still, you know, like social distancing. Like we, you know, we're not we're not really going into inside people's houses right. as we normally would. We're more, I mean, we're out, you know, we're con- hanging out outside, which we normally do anyway. So it's fine. But are you saving all of the fun of your summer for when I get there? Yes, understood. I am. I mean, yeah. yes. No. So yeah, you're coming out. When are you coming out? A couple of weeks. Yeah. I know. I can't yeah. wait. I'm very excited. And you know, I, for, I'm sure all of our listeners know that I have really not left the tri-state area, which is not out of like, oh, I'm such a, oh my God, I'm such an amazing person. I just haven't had really anywhere to go. And it seems like all these trips keep getting canceled, but I am going, <laughs> which I think is ironic to basically four minutes away from where Katie was isolating yeah, herself. Yeah, when are you go- you're going to... <laughs> Next week, I'm going on Sunday. You're going to Manchester, Vermont, which is I where am. I spent the three months of the <laughs> I know. first part of the pandemic. Yeah, well, when you couldn't That's go anywhere. Crazy. So, yeah. I mean, sorry, not to say that you couldn't. I'm just saying no, like, I, I certainly wasn't going anywhere else, but I am like, I just find it quite funny. Yeah. And, um, well, Vermont, you're, you're, you're not mm-hmm. a stranger to Vermont because you went to the University of Vermont for and college. camp in Vermont oh. since I was five years old. Oh, I guess I didn't realize that your yeah. camp was in Vermont. Was, yeah. Okay. It was, it was very uh, on the border of, um, not far from Manchester, really. I mean, in terms of geography, but on the New Hampshire border, right near Dartmouth. Yeah. Um, your which alma is why mater. I'm so smart. Yes, totally my <laughs> alma mater, but I went to University of Vermont. So it's weird. Um, but anyway, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, my young lady, what are you obsessed with this week? I'm obsessed with this cold bottle of rosé. So yeah. why don't you tell me as I pour? As you pour, I'll have a little bit more oh, myself. shut your mouth. So Go the ahead. thing that I'm obsessed with now is tennis. Okay. Brain explosion yeah go on can we play when i come yeah yeah absolutely there's a tennis court there i mean so i there's a tennis court in the little like tiny tiny little spot where we um rent our house in dunewood uh fire island and they have a tennis specific locations people are going to be searching (laughs) exactly stalker you're right um 
And so and my dad plays tennis almost every day of the year and loves it. And, you know, over the years, I've heard about what a great sport it is to play like into your. You've never played. really. I had never played. Never, never, ever played. Like I, I just the captain of my tennis team. In I mean, school. amazing. So that's why I'm not playing you when you go. <laughs> Okay, I don't know if you remember when high school was for me about 30 years ago. Thank you. Still, um, (laughs) I'm not playing you. I I take it back. But I've been wanting to play. And actually, a friend of mine and I decided last year, who does go to Fire Island pretty regularly, had said last year when we left the beach, we're like, we're going to like try to learn this year. and We're going to try to play together and get to Fire Island and just like blow everyone's mind with like how good we were. And then we like tried to find lessons and then the (laughs) pandemic hit. And I was like, okay, we're not doing that. So... But um, since I, I've been there for about a week and um, I've been getting lessons from my dad and um, I know, you know, it's like, so I'm curious to see how it goes. Like I want to keep practicing um, as time goes on. And I think it's a good like social sport, it seems like, you know, and it's like it's relatively like there's something like tennis courts are ubiquitous. I will say that one, I'm most impressed that you're being taught by your father. I um that is something that I would not put well, in my repertoire during yeah, especially such a high but stress. It's been fine so far. <laughs> but I'm sure he's so pleased to be playing totally. with you. And I will tell you that, you know, many people of a certain age are still playing and have been playing. They play every day. I, I think that that is um, much more amazing to me than like my dad's playing golf today and he thinks mm-hmm. he's like should be winning awards. And I'm like, oh, are you walking on grass <laughs> right, right. walking like walk not even not even speed walking well, i think there's a, i don't get golf either really but i mean i think i mean there's i get a, it but i wouldn't like call it like athlo- oh my gosh a million percent yeah. yeah no no i don't i don't deny that but i wouldn't call it like you're sweating because the sun is out you're not sweating right. because you're moving your body whereas right. like tennis is oh it's it might, very active it's so active and especially if you're playing singles um you you don't stop running right it's like right. playing one-on-one basketball you know it's just or, or, or one-on-one lacrosse or something. So how often do you... other sport. How often do you play now? Never. Okay. Zero. When I first moved into my apartment that I live in now, there across the street, there's a park and they have a tennis uh, wall. So I would take my okay. racket and there was a very creepy man who lives in my neighborhood whose name I do not know, but I call him Tennis Freak. Okay. And he's much older and always has a red nose. So we know what that means. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, <laughs> and every time I would go and just, I just wanted to hit a ball. Like it was just my right. little small form of exercise. He would, he was, a, he is a tennis teacher to the kids and stuff. And I don't think there's anything untoward. I just think he's a drunk. Um, and so he'd be like, oh, a, a nice backhand or whatever. Would you like lessons? And I was like, Ugh. so I just never went back. So I only did it like a handful of times, right. but I see him everywhere. But that's neither here nor there. But I think it's a great sport. Yeah. So yeah. would you get back into it if you? If oh, it was I like told a million. Yeah. Abs- I, I think tennis is fantastic. Yeah. And I love that that's your obsession this week. I think that's it's original. It's seasonally focused, <laughs> yes, and you exactly. can do it whilst staying at least six feet away from somebody. Yeah. yeah. It's yes. It's very pandemic uh, conducive. So <laughs> sure is. Well, we'll. I'll. I'll see if if you're up to snuff to play with me. But oh. uh, when I come, but um, I'm like I'm, I'm just learning, and you're like I was captain of the. <laughs> oh my god, the tennis team. Like oh, that god. was all fear produced. I Whatever. Was just... Then we're gonna go to a gym, and we're gonna get on the beam, and we're gonna oh. do. We're gonna do like a Guys. little backflip competition, and then I'll feel like you're equivalent how's that sound? dude 
I don't mean to completely sing your praises, but if anybody Please wants do. to go onto our Instagram and uh, which is underscore kind of obsessed podcast underscore, you will see a picture of actually a few pictures of Katie doing things that are <laughs> contorting body wise. That I, 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 by the way, you can't see me, but I'm looking out as though there's an audience here. And there is. I'm very very tipsy. Um, but no, Katie is way more amazing. I have no pictures I mean, of me playing lacrosse, doing anything that are interesting or tennis really. Um, but anyway, we, uh, yeah, I loud Katie all day long, but, uh, I think we have amazing guests today We do that I am super excited about, uh, talking with, especially during this time, mm -hmm. um, during this movement, hopefully it's not just a moment and they work for the innocence project. Mm -hmm. One is a lawyer, one's a policymaker. Um, Vanessa and Rebecca, and I'm really excited to talk to them. Let's start. We're so excited today to be interviewing Rebecca Brown and Vanessa Potkin. Um, they both work at the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1992 by Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck at the Cardozo School of Law. And their mission is to free innocent people who remain incarcerated and also to reform the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. I'll just give a brief bio for each, um, each of them, both Rebecca and Vanessa. Very impressive. Rebecca is the director of policy at the Innocence Project. She's been working there since 2005, and she directs their federal and state policy agendas. And she basically tries to prevent and reveal wrongful convictions and ensure compensation for the wrongfully convicted once they're released from prison. And Vanessa, her colleague, is the director of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project. She's a nationally recognized expert on wrongful convictions and the use of DNA to establish innocence. She joined the project in 2000 as its first staff attorney, very impressive, and has helped pioneer the model of post-conviction DNA litigation used nationwide to exonerate wrongfully convicted people. She's represented over 30 and exonerated over 30 innocent individuals all across the United States who collectively served over 500 years of wrongful imprisonment. She also trains and mentors other attorneys at the Innocence Project. Rebecca and Vanessa, welcome to the show. Welcome to Kind of welcome. Obsessed. We're so excited to have you. Thank we are you definitely Kind us. of Obsessed to have you both here. Oh, we are. So great to be here. Yes. Yeah, good. Well, I guess I'll kick this off. And um, we're curious about the Innocence Project, obviously, and, and what you guys do. Um, but can you talk a little bit uh, about how pervasive the issue of imprisonment of innocent people is? Sure. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to get a solid number. Um, and it's because the studies are sort of not all over the place, but focus on different populations. So, you know, we can have a stronger sense of, you know, different categories based on crime. But, you know, the estimates really hover at between, uh, you know, two and 10%. And we think mm. probably a fairly solid figure is about four to 6%. Um, and, and what's the total population, generally speaking, of imprisoned people. I mean, what, right. what does that number in actual humans look like? So it's pretty unbelievable. Um, there okay. are 2.3 million people behind bars in America. Uh, America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population. Wow. So we are just an enormous incarcerator. And to put it into perspective, in the 70s, we had about 200,000 people behind bars. So we have just grown exponentially, all while violent crime has actually gone down and briefly i guess why because i say briefly not because i'm not interested but i'm sure the answer could go on and on but 
what, from your perspective, has caused um, incarceration to expand at such a high rate? I mean, is it the profitability of the prison system or other things? Sure. I mean, it, I think there are so many factors. I mean, I think foundational to America's criminal justice system is America's profound racism, um, which has always been, I think, just really a huge feeder. And then you have kind of, I think, a, a series of baked in incentives in our criminal justice system that move towards prosecution, move towards conviction, incarceration. Um, so, for instance, a lot of police agencies in the country have quota systems. They have to hit a certain number of arrests to be promoted or to get the, guest, the best shifts. Uh, we have a private prison industrial complex. At this point, um, there are certain states that have to fill prison beds based on contracts. Um, if they don't, they're just paying for empty beds. Um, so you see all of these drivers kind of at every stage of the criminal justice system, including the fact that, you know, prosecutors are encouraged to win at all costs. Nobody gets promoted for not, you know, moving forward with a with a potential prosecution. So right. even if the evidence is showing that this person was wrongly accused, it doesn't matter. The prosecution has to push for it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, certainly, you know, if there are obvious signs that the pers- that they don't have solid evidence, mm-hmm. hopefully they're not moving forward. But there are too many factors, human factors that really play into this, like cognitive bias and tunnel vision. And so sort of this notion that, you know, the person they have must be there for a reason, and then they reject any evidence that comes into the mm-hmm. contrary. So I think it's it's much more, you know, I don't think people are going into this saying, you know, with the exception of, you know, when people get framed, um, you know, which I think is more exceptional. I think the truth of the matter is that we just have a system that's driven towards conviction and nobody gets rewarded for walking the other way. Right. So you'd argue that it's primarily a system-based problem, which is, you know, what you primarily address through your policy work, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess how, how and why do innocent people get put in prison? I mean, that's a really general question, but for assuming that for those of us out there, including myself and Sarah, that we don't really know much. I mean, it seems speak from my perspective yourself. to, <laughs> I, I apologize. I should never speak for how knowledgeable Sarah is on anything. I've um, watched their Netflix show, so I'm pretty much She's, part of the project. Right. <laughs> um, but go ahead. I, I forgot Katie. to give yeah. your bio. No, thanks. Sarah just joined the Innocence Project. <laughs> <laughs> she works Pro bono, guys. Pro bono. Absolutely. Pro bono um, I guess from like a, if you were to approach this with, you know, an, uh, a naive sort of sensibility, um, you know, or maybe an optimistic sensibility, you would think, okay, so we have a criminal justice system and yes, there's institutional racism and yes, mistakes are made. But generally speaking, you want to assume as a citizen who pays taxes and has, you know, a beating heart that generally the people that get put away, particularly for violent crime or for all crimes, I should say, um, deserve to be there. So, So why is this not happening? What are the primary drivers for this type of thing not happening? Well, I think a lot of times there's a rush to judgment, you know, the same type of rush to judgment that we see, you know, lead to police shootings plays out when um, police are responding to, uh, you know, rape, a murder, a serious crime and starting to investigate. And so there may be a hunch or for whatever reason, they zero in on somebody as a suspect. And like Rebecca said, you know, because of cognitive bias and tunnel vision, then, you know, the case against that innocent person just begins to snowball. So we know that eyewitness identification, you know, testimony is extraordinarily powerful, but um, very unreliable, right? And so 
Um, also, you know, a large number of our cases involve false confessions with the, you know, there have been 375 people proven innocent with DNA. You know, there are thousands of people who've been proven innocent when you consider all types of evidence that can overturn a wrongful conviction. But in the DNA cases, almost 30% of those cases involve confessions to crimes that people were completely innocent of. That is staggering because most people think I would never confess to a crime that I, you know, I didn't do, especially when you're confessing to, you know, rape, murder. But we know people do. And there are a variety of reasons that that occurs. Um, you know, Rebecca referred to some of the incentives in the system, incentivize witnesses, right? Colloquially, snitches, informants, you know, people who have an incentive to lie because they're going to get a benefit, you know? So, um, you know, when police are trying to solve a crime, a lot of times they'll put pressure on somebody to give up evidence. And, and this leads to uh, witnesses falsely implicating innocent people. So there are a, a variety mm -hmm. of reasons, you know, some of them that are, you know, more tangible and we can work at reforms, you know, to try to, you know, reduce and increase the accuracy. But at the end of the day, I think it goes back to what Rebecca said. If we are, you know, having 2.3 million people in prison, you know, if we're processing hundreds of thousands of cases and a lot of them are, you know, bullshit or very low level, you know, we're, we criminalize, anything can be criminalized in this country. You know, if you sit in a criminal court it will just, it, it is it is outrageous. It's infuriating what people are coming to court for, you know, driving with a suspended license and they're inside, they're in jail for mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. or things that should just be handled, you know, giving a false name to a police officer and that person is in jail. And, you know, mm -hmm. we incarcerate people for really, um, you know, not legitimate reasons, you know, as just as, as what society we want to be. It's So in any case, when you have a system that's handling all of these you know, kind of minor cases, you know, it's just, it's not getting it right when it comes to more serious cases. What do you find is, or are the many reasons that would make somebody, for those people who might not understand why somebody would ever give a false confession, what are the tactics that are used to employ and get that, that false confession for somebody who really has tunnel vision? Well, you know, Early on in the 19th century, you know, 20th century, it, Ooh, you know, we used to beat. Take it back. Yeah, we yes. used to be able to, like, you know, cops could beat confessions out of people. Mm -hmm. And then we became more enlightened to say, like, that's not appropriate, right? And that's not going to be reliable. But physical coercion turned into mental coercion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, basically, um, officers throughout this country are really trained in a method that is not aimed at it's not an investigation. It's not a truth-seeking endeavor where we're asking questions because we, we're, you know, we're trying to really ferret out all the facts. It's that police have decided that you're guilty. The interrogation starts when they, based on a hunch or based on whatever reason, they've decided you're guilty. And the goal of the interrogation, it's not questioning, it's to get a confession. That's so it goes they, against yeah. the basic premise of our entire just, criminal justice system, which is innocent until proven guilty. I mean, mm -hmm. what you're saying is that it's basically guilty until proven innocent. A lot of times, and it's even worse, Rebecca's working on, you know, eliminating deception and in interrogations and can talk about that. That's just mind blowing. It's mind. I mean, police are allowed to lie to you during interrogations. They can say we found a bloody fingerprint at the crime scene and it matches to you. And so with no basis for that, the wow. test hasn't even been run. And the person is sitting there thinking this is an inevitability, right? I'm hopeless right. Um, without help. You know, and so and they say that they have this evidence. I, maybe I blacked out or oftentimes I know I'm innocent, 
but I'm going to just tell this guy what he needs to hear because I want to get out of this room and we'll solve it later. And I think the really tragic thing about, you know, the innocent is that they don't seek the protections that guilty people do. Mm -hmm. They don't ask for a lawyer because they just think, okay, I'm going to just explain what happened. I wasn't there and Mm -hmm. we'll keep it moving. But that's not what happens. And Mm -hmm. then if you overlay, I would imagine like mental illness uh, and poverty and maybe lack of education and that's and lack of uh, resources or access to resources over a lifetime. I mean, that I mean, I'm just assuming totally. maybe that plays I mean, a role in all this I mean, mental limitations. Well. There are many reasons why right. people are more vulnerable. Youth are more vulnerable. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, and, you know, we don't ever like this to get lost, you know, perfectly mentally capable adults give false confessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do that because of all the methods that are employed, like deception, like a protracted interrogation that lasts hours and hours and hours and hours. Just break them down. Yeah. So that, right. yeah and if there's two, if you know, if you're arrested with somebody else, they're playing you off the other person. Oh, he's in the other room saying that you did it. And if you don't tell me right now, you're going to go down for this. You know, you have to say it. And Katie, so it's just like, people we have to get our feel- story straight. <laughs> Thank but work you. Work on it now, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You were saying earlier, um, one of the reasons why there are so many people, number one, incarcerated, but um, so many people who are wrongfully incarcerated. What is the the statistic between Caucasian people and people of color that are wrongfully convicted? I think we know the rates on um, how often police brutality is employed on people of color, but compared to white people. But um, what is that in terms of what you guys have seen? Yeah, is there a certain profile in general or? I mean, uh, the majority of people who've been exonerated in our country are people of color. Um, More than 70% of the DNA-based exonerees um, are people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, you can track at any point in the criminal justice system disparity. Um, That is, It's just a result of that, basically. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other reason I just saw the John Oliver clip on (laughs) jurors, which I thought was fantastic. And that is another reason, you know, when you say, why do people get wrongfully convicted? You know, if you're wrongfully arrested and brought to trial, who's judging your case? You know, what is their experience with the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system? Are you, you know, having jurors evaluate your case that are, you know, people of color who live with the life experience of knowing, you know, what is the reality of policing in this country? Or is it people who just can't, you know, relate to a defense because... Mm -hmm that is so outside of their lived experience. And they're often, uh, at least from that piece that I, I watched as well, they're, so often women of color are asked not to be on a jury because they may side with the um, defendant when that's not really actually how they may feel. You know, they may be like, yes, I live in this community and it's something that I can relate to, but I'm, I still have as open a mind as, you know, that white woman does. And so I found that really striking um, that they do their very best to take people of color off of jurors. Oh, there's no question. And I think, you know, what's even more interesting is I think oftentimes black jurors are better jurors because they actually understand the system Mm. more. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we actually had a case uh, in Georgia, um, a man who was uh, ultimately wrongfully convicted of a rape, but had also been accused of this, a different rape in the neighboring county. Um, and he had been acquitted. And that was a mixed jury. The all-white jury convicted him. And mm. DNA later proved he was innocent of both crimes. So, in fact, I mean, I actually see having a good racial composition of juries to be a fix, right? Mm-hmm. That that actually is something that should be proposed to enhance the reliability of the system. Mm-hmm. It's an issue of accuracy. And it seems like some prosecutors are 
teaching their fellow cohorts to employ this idea of not of stacking the deck, really, in terms of the jury, which has always been, I would imagine, a thing that you would want to get a jury that is going to side with your case. Yeah, that's their But I mean, it's it's when it's racial bias, um, you know. I mean, that's the other thing, though, too. And I mean, I I I get it that it is their case and we are in an adversarial system. But at the end of the day, the prosecutor is supposed to be about justice, right? And so really, you are supposed to be about not winning, even though we know that that's not true. But (laughs) You know, a just, you know, a prosecutor, if there is an acquittal, right, then the prosecutor shouldn't be mad about that because that is the decision, you know. And I think that so oftentimes they're invested and it's about winning. And, it, you know, they also, too, come, become, you know, doggedly convinced of somebody's guilt and just mm-hmm. can't even conceptualize that there is another truth out there. Well, a lot of it seems like a media game, too. I mean, the big prosecutors, you know, who gain fame and fortune, you know, um, from this, from winning these cases, I mean, they're also out there in front of the press and saying, you know, talk about being dogged. I mean, you, you have to. I mean, they're just like so one way. It's so funny you say that because just as a normal, you know, citizen who tries to read the news, I, I never really thought about it in those terms. <laughs> I never really thought about how it's the pros- the prosecutor should really be seeking truth and justice. I personally. Uh, have always thought about it as an adversarial relationship. Like, you know, the prosecutor assumes guilt, I guess, and the defenders assume the innocence, and then they go at it and they try to figure it out. But it's really a different way of of looking at it, which I would think that if we were, if they were trained that way and we as a society looked at it, it would it would really, you would see very different results. But there are personal, yeah, there is personal gain from becoming a successful prosecutor. There's no doubt about that. And so that's part of the, you know, human humans play a role and i I guess guess. it's like you should be successful but what does success look like like Mm -hmm. rebecca was saying you know you don't really get promoted by being the prosecutor who dismisses the most cases Mm -hmm. that the police bring you because they're bullshit you know and you should of course yeah um, i'm makes sense and the way it is now i mean but yeah it doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things um i i'm curious about the dna technology is this something that the innocence project pioneered no. Okay. <laughs> but can you, but talk I, about you can that just call bit? Vanessa Watson and Chris. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that what um, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, who founded the Innocence Project, did is that, you know, they were public defenders in the Bronx and they, you know, were representing somebody in the late 80s who they believed to be innocent and were trying, you know, had heard that there was this new forensic test out there that prosecutors were just starting to use to identify people who had committed crimes and seek prosecutions. And so they, you know, recognize like, look, if it can identify the perpetrator, it can also show that this person who's been convicted or who's accused um, is innocent. And so, you know, thus the Innocence Project was born. And, um, you know, there are 375 people today who have been proven innocent with DNA testing. But you know, tens and thousands of more people each year who are never brought to trial because of DNA testing. And in the early days when DNA just came about and the FBI created its DNA laboratory, you know, they kept statistics. And I think they they might even still keep these statistics to this day of, you know, when police brought them, and these are police agencies from throughout the country, they're prime suspect. They had done their investigation. They're like, this is who we think it is. And then they sent the evidence for testing about 25% of the time that person was excluded. So what would have happened without DNA testing? Mm -hmm. That person probably would have gone to trial and Mm -hmm. how many of those people would have been convicted? So 
DNA is not available in most cases. It's just available in, I think, about less than 10% right. mm-hmm. of um, violent, you know, or Prior cases. to conviction. Just in any and case. Just in oh, any right. case. Yeah, like okay. probative DNA that you can test that really gets to the heart of who committed the crime. It's really available in less than 10% of, you know, violent cases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not like, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, we have DNA testing now, so we'll have no more wrongful <laughs> convictions. And the truth is, is that it's never, it's, it's, it's not a panacea. It's not going to help us solve Just the like problem. Just like we have testing for COVID. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're, good. So we're totally good. doing great though. <laughs> yeah. No, you just need, just wait a week and you'll get yeah. your yeah. results. Yeah. Yeah. Just go month, about right. your business. Go to salad yeah. bars. <laughs> <laughs> same concept maybe? Okay. Yeah. Problem solved. Super cool. Yeah. Glad the same what I have seen is that once this person um, is wrongfully convicted, sentenced and is incarcerated, that process of getting them out, the actual work that you guys do um, with or without DNA, um, but all the other amazing tools at your disposal um, and the hard work and smarts. Um, Am I kissing enough? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, isn't that the hardest thing to do is to get somebody who has been convicted like out? It's very hard because pre-trial, theoretically, you have the presumption of innocence, which we can, you know, say probably doesn't really exist in reality. But post-conviction, there's the presumption of guilt. So mm-hmm. every time you go to the court, there's a presumption that the jury came to the right verdict. And there are a bunch of rules that are set in place Um you know, rules that Bill Clinton and other people were a big part of in the mm-hmm. 90s that really restrict the ability for people to get back into court um, Mm post-conviction. And so it is hard because there are a lot of procedural obstacles um, in some states after your direct appeal. So you go to, you know, you get convicted and you have a chance to say, oh, there were some errors at my trial. This is not bringing in new evidence of innocence yet. But in, in some states, you just, for that first appeal, you're entitled to a lawyer, but then not afterwards. So imagine you're like in rural Mississippi, thrown in prison, you know, all these procedural obstacles against you. You don't have access to a lawyer. And the state of Mississippi has convicted you based on junk science. You know, mm-hmm. how do you, how does, you know, and you see so you have families like, you know, basically, you know, selling off property, you know, trying to, you know, pay lawyers, a lot of times lawyers just taking their money. Um, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a really horrendous system, you know, once you're convicted. It's really hard. How do you really guys hard. find out about cases? I mean, do, do, is it, do they, pro, do these um, uh, incarcerated people reach out to you guys or is it a combination of? Yeah, no, they write to us because Barry Sheck was on, you know, Donahue mm-hmm. in the 90s. Oh, nice. And since that moment. Love Donahue. <laughs> oh my God, he's a man. He's the man. He's the man. Yes. We yeah. still bring out our VHS t- tapes. Oh, good. Like, relive the moment. Yeah, you yeah. have to. You have to. So, he, so he was on Donahue, and then ever, and so he got all the these letters started being, coming, uh-huh. and you know, and people hear about Innocence Project, they see other people getting exonerated, mm-hmm. they you know hear, you know, people, you know, do there are prison libraries, they're not, you know, some of them are barely functioning. Um, but you know, word gets around. And so really it's, it's clients and their families hearing about Innocence Project and and reaching out. I think it's what is so fascinating to me about the, you were talking about the monetary financial cost, the emotional cost of these people being wrongfully convicted and sentenced, what it does to them, them and their families and their families is so major that the, 
you know, they might get some monetary, um, they might be able to sue the state or the what have you. I, I just can't imagine what this does to some people. And, you know, having done, especially during this pandemic, just a deep dive into some real true stories and having watched again, have I said it <laughs> on Netflix, The Innocence Project? I mean, the, you know, fi- these people have been fighting for their innocence, proving who they are as human people, you know, just for their own identity and whether or not they were put in when they were 17 or 18, but tried as an adult, or they were put in when they were 35 and what that must do to even be incarcerated for a year, let alone, I think the longest time that somebody was incarcerated was what, 35 years or something? Insane. 45. 45. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not even that old. I'm kidding. I am. (laughs) All right. All right. Calm down. Um, But that, what you guys must see, especially I'm guessing you're working with the families, you know, it must just be having to rebuild this person's life. And I don't even understand how it's done. And they all seem, well, they, they seem much more forgiving than I would be. What's been your experience? I mean, it's also crazy because it's like prison is a horrible place. Like, it's not like you're just going, you know, it's not like you're just isolated. Like, we've all been isolated in COVID and it really sucks to not be able to leave your house or yeah. go places or see people. But it's also, you know, we're not also getting beaten up and, you know, put like stripped down and put in solitary or sexually assaulted. Or, I mean, it's just, it's a really traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. So it's not only like what you've lost, maybe if you have a kid you know, like your kid was one or, or your wife was pregnant and your kid was born when you were in prison. You've never seen them and now they're 25. But it's so it's all you've missed and it's all you've endured, you know, during that time period. And imagine, you know, look at how the world has changed. You went into prison in the 70s or the 80s and you come out now. It's just. And there's Instagram and like. <laughs> right. I mean, that that's actually the first thing people ask. Oh my god, they're like is, social media, you know, like how, how, do, I, how do I take a Insta. selfie? Yeah, no, right. even if you're not in prison. I think. <laughs> but, Sorry, I just like to add. No, but I, I'm Go really ahead. glad that you actually brought up the issue of compensation, right? Because I think you know people have a lot of misperceptions. Mm-hmm. They assume somebody was wrongfully convicted. They were wronged by the state. Sometimes it was an honest error, right? But oftentimes there was misconduct of some Mm -hmm. manner. Um, And so people just believe, oh, you're going to sue and you're going to just make millions and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of our clients are, I would say, still really fighting to just keep their heads above water. We have uh, only 35 states have even passed laws to compensate wrongfully convicted people. Most of those laws are woefully inadequate. So if you were wrongfully convicted in Montana, you get educational aid when you come out. So you could have been in for 20 years and they say, here's some educational aid. You come out of prison in New Hampshire, no matter how many years you served, you get $20,000 for your troubles. So unless you can prove official misconduct that led to a constitutional violation, they're very hard, you know, sort of thresholds to meet, you don't get any civil damages. Um, And that's protracted litigation. It goes on and on for years. And a lot of the time people never get it. So people assume, oh, you just sue and you can move on. Not true. You oftentimes have to rely on whatever the state has passed with respect Mm -hmm. to compensation. Most of these laws are embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we still have 15 states without laws at all. So we have many, many clients that never even got a cent. I mean, truly nothing. And I mean, it's it's just a total embarrassment. And of course, you know, as you were saying, right, I mean, every person, there's not one person that comes out without post-traumatic stress. Some people come out with, you know, much bigger issues mm-hmm. to deal with and, and loss, right? Mm-hmm. They've often lost their parents. 
you know, they lost the opportunity to watch their children grow. They never got to develop professionally. So, you know, they're out of step even with their cohort mm-hmm. when they come out. I mean, for every reason, you know, we should be running to do everything we can to restore people yeah. as best we can. You can't, there's nothing you can do to make up for it. Right. You no. can and do, at a minimum, you know. you know, I mean, families who lose, it's, I would imagine mostly men, they lose every year that they're in jail, these families lose a year's worth of salary, right? Uh, and I would think at a minimum, you would be compensated for however many years, plus all of the, just no. all of the no. stuff that you and, go through. And the you know? identity, you know, I think that oftentimes we, I take for granted, I'll speak for myself, that, you know, my identity is based in what I do for a living or who my friends are or my family or how I, you know, choose to live. And to think that, you know, that is completely stripped away from you. How do you come out and what skill do you have? Um, And why wouldn't you hate the system? I mean, I think a a lot, I mean, first of all, I mean, I certainly a lot of people... (laughs) you know, come out and and are righteously furious. But I think a lot of people are, you know, will tell you that staying that angry inside will kill them. Like they have to figure out another way to get Mm -hmm. through the time. It doesn't mean that having that degree of anger isn't totally righteous. Um, They should. Um, And I mean, there's no should. I mean, people handle things the way they handle things. But I think, you know, the, the point is, I mean, I'm astounded by how generous a lot of our clients are when they come out in terms of, I mean, I don't think I would have anything close to that mm-hmm. degree of generosity. But I also think, you know, I mean, people are people, right? They're, nobody's, a, it's not a monolith, right. right? People have all different ways of processing things. And, you know, um, but I think what's just a stain on our system is that we don't minimally do everything we can to restore people. I mean, it's it's disgusting. What's, what's a, are there any cases in particular that stand out in your minds that have really stuck with you? That you that you're willing and able to talk about, just to give it more of a human sort of like, what is this really like for people and their families? There's so many cases. I mean, it's so complicated to just talk about one or mm. two. Um, I mean, one case that's always stood out to me at Innocence Project is a client, Byron Halsey, who was wrongfully convicted of this really horrific murder in New Jersey. It was, you know, he, but his whole story really embodies what's wrong with the criminal justice system. And so he was um, born in prison. And his mom was put in prison when she was 16 years old because she had sex. Oh. Um, Yeah. So she was 15 and she was having some trouble at home. And so she ended up going to you know, pro, juvenile court, and she was put on probation. And as one of her conditions of probation, she could not fornicate. Now, I wouldn't believe this if I didn't see the papers myself. It that said n- fornicate, no actual, fornication. Yeah. It was a condition of her. Katie did not yeah. have that. Wow. <laughs> no, that sounds way too big brother to me. <laughs> so she was still about to fornicate. And then she gets pregnant with Byron when she's 16. And she's put in a woman's prison in New Jersey. Gives birth to Byron. Um, and he's taken away and put in foster care. And so then he just ends up being raised in foster care in this horrendous, you know, a family's about to adopt him when he's 10. And then he gets into a fight at school and they say, oh, he's too violent. And so, you know, he bounces around. And finally, when he's in his early 20s, he meets this woman. She's a little bit older than him. She's got two kids. There's, I think, about seven and nine. 
and they start living together. And he like, you know, finally feels like I have a family. He's like, considers himself like the dad. Um, the mom herself really wasn't a stable parent, but he brought stability to the house. And um, one night, he they live in kind of a rooming house where there's a bunch of different families. And one night, one of the neighbors has asked him to give him a ride and he leaves the kids in the apartment. Now, I think in the 80s, this was perfectly normal, mm-hmm. right? My mother left me in the car, like, yeah. all the time for hours. Did she yeah. enroll no, a window? My mom has a window. I don't know. Yeah, it I might know. be why I'm so short. I don't know. But. Yeah, you have to fit in a car. Right. Yeah. But that was typical yeah. in the right. 80s. I mean, yeah. 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 yes. Mm-hmm. My dad yeah. left me at My parents did not care oh much about God. me because I care about my Oh, God. <laughs> I, mean, I don't have kids because my parents don't give a shit. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. So he, so he leaves the kids and he comes back and they're not there. And he's, you know, calling the mom. She's at work. She's a home help aide. And, he, you know, she's How old like, are they? They're seven and nine. Okay. And the mom's like, no big deal. They probably went to one of their cousin's house who lives around. Don't worry about it. After a while, they're not back. And he, you know, he's pretty frantic and he's calling around. Needless to say, the bottom line is they never come home. They notify the police. The next morning, the kids are found in the basement of this building and they have been sexually assaulted and murdered in the most brutal way, like the boy had nails hammered into his head, right? So it's like this horrific death penalty, you know, huge, high-profile case. Rebecca's right mom remembers right. the I mean, case. I mean, I remember the yeah. case. I grew up in New Jersey. It was like on the cover of the Star-Ledger, they had a picture of oh the child with yeah. the nails. I mean, it was like... Like an X-ray. It's X-ray. It was yeah. oh, okay. super traumatic. I saw it, like, yeah. as a kid, I remember just being like, you know, it was a huge case in New Jersey. Wow. And I grew up out there, so... Yeah. So they end up interrogating him. They claim that he falsely confessed. You know, you know, he's a bit eccentric, right? So they he says, you know, when he gets to the house and the kids aren't there, he notices that some hot dogs were cooking on the stove. And so he eats the hot dogs. So so when he tells this to the police, they're like, what did you do? And he's like, well, I ate the hot dogs. They're like, who the fuck would eat the hot dogs? You know what I'm saying? Like, and just like, how could you do that? And so they make all these assumptions about him, interrogate him, claim that he falsely confessed. He... You know, he had been like, so he's mourning. These are, you know, he has now just suffered the loss of two kids, right? Um, that he was raising as his own. And he they tell him he can't go back to his house. He's like staying at the YMCA. They keep interrogating him. They claim that they give they give him a polygraph because he's like, you know, polygraph me. And, um, and they're so unreliable. They're not even allowed right. in court. But he's like, I'll do it. Signs a waiver that they could use it in whichever way they want. And they lie to him and say that he, he you know, failed the polygraph. And it was, you know, the polygraph was problematic. Anyways, they, they, they end up convicting him. He only meets his parents, his birth parents, when his lawyers are trying to save his life and do like a mitigation case. And the horrendous thing was his mom and dad, you know, who had birthed him, I guess, like, you know, when they were at teens, ended up getting back together and had a family and had other kids that they went on to raise, like, mm-hmm. while Byron is, like, living in this crazy life. So he gets convicted and sentenced to to prison. Um, and 22 years later, we do DNA testing, and the DNA ends up matching the guy who asked him to <gasps> give him a ride. I know. Who's then in prison for three other rapes that he did. That happened after? Yeah, that happened after. after of course. Because yeah. Byron uh-huh. was, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. And in that case, just to show kind of tunnel vision, like Rebecca was talking about, that when they were looking in the basement, they found a bloody uniform, work uniform, that matched the wife's 
the wife of the true perpetrator. But they just discounted it at this point. Like, oh, maybe it was already in the basement Mm. or, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the 80s were famous for leaving your kids at home alone (laughs) and just being like, oh, that evidence looks fine. We don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did we get him out? Oh, the DNA. Sorry, pardon me. I've had some rosé. Did you guys work on that? (laughs) Yeah, it was Vanessa's case. Oh, wow. And when was that? So I guess that was in the 80s. Did that come out? Was that in the early 2000s? Or? Yeah, so I think he was exonerated or, in 2007, mm. around 2007. And how Where is he now? Yeah, what's his life like now? He's doing great. He ended up marrying a woman he was dating, um, you know, kind of what well, must have been before he, you know, like a, a few years before this all happened. And, you know, they're happy. He's one of the people that ended up getting compensated. So he, you know, has financial freedom. Um, and he's doing well. Oh. Yeah. I did see uh, in my research that New York State has the most wrongfully convicted, uh, incarcerated people. Is that? Well, I think, you know, the, the leading states in terms of like where the, you know, yeah, most exonerations, guess, yeah. right, mm-hmm. are New York, Illinois, Texas. But I think, you know, what's interesting is sometimes you reveal more wrongful convictions because you've saved the evidence, right? Mm. There are a lot of states Mm. that don't preserve biological evidence. And of course, there's, you know, states where you don't even have the benefit of DNA. Mm. But but the point is, you know, I'm always hesitant to say, oh, well, this is the state with the problem. Like Mm -hmm. none of these issues stop at any state borders, Right. right? None of them. Like eyewitness misidentification is a human phenomenon. Right. People aren't intentionally misidentifying people. But we've learned, you know, even through archival studies that eyewitnesses get it wrong about 30 percent of the time, just in any case. So do you propose like as an organization, do you propose that that not be a part of? I mean, I think you can't scrap entire forms of evidence. I mean, there are certain forms of evidence that I would scrap. Right. Like I think like bite mark evidence. Right. It's just that just should not be. But you have, you know, sometimes it is evidence that is necessary evidence. And there are times that, you know, it is a solid identification. The problem is you should, of course, never proceed with a sole identification. Yeah. That right. should never happen. And and also you should never proceed with an identification that was begotten through terrible methods, which are, frankly, traditional methods. And about half the country still uses them. So, for instance, you want to make sure the person administering a lineup uh, doesn't know the suspect's identity. It's called blind administration. Like mm-hmm. you have, you know, blind drug trials, right? right? You're just, of course you do that because you want to have, you know, some sort of authentic process, right? But unfortunately, you know, there's all sorts of suggestion that comes with having a non-blind administrator. Obviously, if a cop has tunnel vision himself and believes that this person, you know, did it, mm-hmm. um, they're gonna, you know, even unknowingly, and we and a lot of the research shows this, they're unintentionally feeding cues to the suspect. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, to the eyewitness. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are simple reforms you can put in place to really improve the reliability of that kind of evidence. And that should just be. Yeah. Um, but then you also have to look at even if you have an identification that was, you know, you got that from, you know, good techniques, you have to look at the case altogether, right? Like, and you should be corroborating that with independent evidence. And, you know, it, it, the problem is that, you know, we have flimsy evidence and oftentimes you use forms of evidence to fill in for the fact that you have terrible evidence. Mm-hmm. Like in death penalty cases, it's very common and frankly in other cases too, to use jailhouse informants mm-hmm. because you don't have enough evidence. So how can you fill in for that evidence? You get this guy who says, oh, well, my cellmate said that he did this horrible murder. He just opened up one night mm-hmm. and um, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't, and, you know, somehow, somehow now I'm out of prison 
for, you know, whatever it is mm. I did, right? So, and I mean, there's a case going on right now in Pinellas County in Florida where, you know, there's an informant that's put like a ton of guys away on, on, on death cases. Mm. And it's turned out that this informant himself, former law enforcement, by the way, who um, was literally like sexually abusing two of his girlfriend's daughters, you know, and this guy kept getting all sorts of leniency. And meanwhile, he's putting people behind bars and and there's a guy on death row right now in texas based on i mean in florida based on this guy's testimony wow so i mean i think it's not just a question of you know i mean you certainly can make improvements to make these forms of evidence more reliable you can regulate you can you know have oversight and that's all over the place in this Mm -hmm. country yeah but but i was gonna say you i mean you push for legislation in all 51 states i mean that that's an an incredible I mean by the way your staff is huge like I I mean <laughs> I was just impro- like most nonprofits I mean you know don't have staff I mean it's in- it's incredible so you must be not well when funded we started, and, have- no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and not after today but, it'll be bigger right, right. right. they're totally hiring me. Um, <laughs> but I guess is there anything like like what can be done on a federal level I mean and do you right. advocate for I mean you know, more power being held by the federal government uh, for any reasons, or is it better held with the states or? I, I mean, mean, it's, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's not really even something we can control. Right. right. So it's like any, you know, if you're convicted of, you know, a state crime, mm-hmm. you are controlled by a state system. Right. So the, the system has to be changed at the state level. The feds are not all controlling over law enforcement, right. like how police practice, right? right? They don't, you know, there are things that the feds can do, right? They can do things that affect the federal prison system. Right. And there are things that they can do, you know, like we, you know, we lobby to get appropriations in Congress so that they fund our post-conviction DNA testing work around Got the it. country, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and there are things that you can do that can impact all of our clients. Like, for instance, you know, qualified immunity is something that actually gets in the way of our clients being able to get financial justice. What's that? What it's does that basically mean? It, it basically says the cops are immune from civil damages. If I mean, it's a very complicated concept, but basically, you have to be able to prove that you know if you're bringing forward a claim that that kind of claim has been brought forward before, and mm-hmm. that you know the facts are nearly identical, um, and then you can proceed to say you know this cop you know, I, I can be compensated or, or receive, you know, civil redress. Mm-hmm. But but the, the point is that qualified immunity is something that was really court created. Mm-hmm. And Congress can come in and override that. Mm-hmm. And there are actually four proposals in Congress right now to try to do that. One has passed the House. We don't expect, you know, this is obviously, you know, probably not, not the landscape where it's going to happen. Not at this moment mm-hmm. is, I mean, we're hopeful, you know. Hopefully. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I think certainly this is, you know, as this country and as there's been a public outcry for police accountability, you know, it's certainly a good moment to mm-hmm. take another look at this. It has really gotten the way of people being able to, you know, receive compensation and not just around wrongful convictions, it's around police brutality, all mm-hmm. kinds of cases where, you know, the police were at fault and, you know, and people just are out of luck because mm-hmm. of this doctrine of qualified immunity. So it's something that absolutely has to change. That can be accomplished at the federal level. It should be. Um, but, you know, since there's no movement right now on that um, or not quick enough movement, you know, there have been calls like even today, the Washington Post was talking about the need for the states to create causes of action for people mm. because they have to kind of circumvent that. So I, the, the point is, it's complicated, uh, but generally speaking, you have to, anytime you want to reform an aspect of the system, you generally have to do it state by state. 
It seems mm. so important and almost like a no-brainer that oversight obviously needs to be implemented throughout every state and in, in general, especially when doing investigative work and especially when lives are really on the line. And And you were saying before, Vanessa, about polygraphs, how they're not admissible in court. Mm-hmm. So why the fuck are we still doing them? Um, and mm-hmm. they can so easily be beaten um, so you can get like a false positive and they can, mm-hmm. so somebody's negative. So now all eyes are on that person mm-hmm. because they were super stressed out. Like whenever I get mm-hmm. my temperature taken, when I go mm-hmm. to the nail salon, it's like, mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to rise because I'm like scared. <laughs> I feel like that's a really good analogy. Very comparable. Yeah. yeah. No, super, high stakes. Yeah. Super yeah. really yeah. high stakes. Yeah. I mean, you got to get yeah. your nails done. That's not yeah. get crazy. <laughs> but why do they still do them? Well, it's actually interesting when, you know, we were talking about false confessions and this move to, you know, create techniques that, um, you know, that that could get people to confess. I mean, polygraphs actually played a big role in that because um, the company, John Reed and Associates, that created kind of the leading, it's like the leading interrogation school, you know, in the in the U.S., um, also was doing polygraphs. They really started off as administering polygraphs and they worked with employers and, you know, people would take polygraphs as a condition of employment mm-hmm. and then laws changed around being able to get people to take, you know, force them to submit to polygraphs. And so then In they, interviews for jobs, they would use polygraphs? Yeah, yeah. And then they moved towards how can we be human lie detectors? And so how can we do behavioral analysis to study you know, your posture, where you're looking, your tone, how you respond to, you know, specific questions, you know, so they really believe that they are, you know, human lie detectors. And then that goes into the whole interrogation. So like, the whole process is to kind of test you Mm -hmm. and to see how you respond. And if I determine that, you know, you're sitting back and you're doing that, you're looking Mm -hmm. left instead of right, or, you know, whatever it is, then um, that I, I say you're you're showing deception and now it's time to interrogate you and use all these like promises of, you know, like, right. I'm here to help you. I'm the only one that other cops going to come in. You're going to do life. You know, I can talk to the judge. And like they really, you know, there's certain things they can't make promises, but they go straight to the line, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like they imply, you know, it's just it's so close. And yeah, so so they basically believe that they're human, you know, lie detectors. The problem is, is that you know, the studies that have looked at it found that they're really like, it's like it's a coin toss, you know, mm-hmm. they're not really good. And maybe there are a few people who are skilled, but you know, they they do these courses. And so imagine like people from small jurisdictions, small police departments take a two day course. Mm-hmm. And then they think they're experts in lie detection, you yeah. know, and then they they misinterpret your cues and then, you know, use these coercive means to interrogate and, you. And, so and the power like, dynamic there is just, I mean, you know, especially... Yeah. I don't know. I, I just thought that whole and everything is, is so planned. You know, like the the interrogation schools. They say where the table should be placed. It's to yeah, isolate sure. you. You're not facing. I'm sure, there's a science. How close we? Yeah, feng shui. Exactly. I think it's feng shui. <laughs> right. Feng shui. Is it feng shui? The feng shui of isolation. Of the, yeah. Yes. yeah. Like put a succulent um, over there, there facing north. Right. And, and if they look at it twice in two minutes, they're definitely <laughs> guilty. Um, are there any cases in which? Um, they somebody was exonerated and then found guilty again, or is or are there any special cases? I was curious if there had you know there has been a you know an effort on your half to 
exonerate somebody and it and it failed. I mean, does that happen a lot or do the cases I I would think that the cases tell me if I'm wrong that you guys take on like there's a reason you take them on like it's it it's there's some clarity around like th- this thing has a shot, this thing has a chance. So, I mean, do you have percentages as to Well, in the early days, you know, when we first started doing DNA testing, we would really take any case and it kind of mm-hmm. holds true to this day. If you're asking mm-hmm. for DNA testing, we don't care how guilty you look because we know all these forms of evidence could be wrong. So like the first person to be exonerated from death row, Kirk Bloodsworth with DNA had five eyewitnesses who said that they believed that, you know, like they identified him as the person who was last with this little girl who was abducted and killed and he was totally innocent and DNA exonerated him and identified the actual assailant. You know, we can have these deep, you know, not only just false confessions, but a lot of the false confessions are very rich with details that seemingly only the perpetrator would know. So we represented a man named Douglas Warney in Rochester, New York, who was convicted of a stabbing murder. A man was, you know, stabbed to death in his home. And in Doug Warney's confession, quote unquote, you know, he talked about the fact that the the victim had been cooking chicken on the stove. Like, I mean, these are details that you would think, unless you were there and Mm. committed the crime, how do you know? But the problem is, is that a lot of times there are details that the police knew. And so whether it's, you know, deliberate, you know, or it's even unconscious in asking questions like, you know, what was on the stove when you got there or something? Well, now you've already revealed that there was something on the stove, Mm -hmm. you know. So sometimes unconsciously, Mm -hmm. you know, this information is conveyed, but it's so dangerous because then you have a statement that's rich with details that anybody hearing it would be like, you know, of course, this person is guilty. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, why we have to record custodial interrogations, right? Like that's a reform mm-hmm. that we try to, you know, put in place so that you have a full record of not just sort of this tightly tailored confession, but everything that led up to the confession. What was the, what happened during the interrogation? We have an example of a case from D.C. where we we actually work with a, a retired homicide detective from D.C. who's uh, totally on board with this reform because he himself took a false confession. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he was like an above board kind of guy, like he was truly, you know, trying to solve a murder. And he unintentionally was feeding facts to, you know, the suspect. Um, and the person was parroting them back hours later. Right. But like knew that the victim had a purple jacket. Well, how would she know that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when they went back and realized that the suspect's alibi was airtight, she was on videotape at a homeless shelter when the crime took place. He said, how could this have happened? He went back and looked at the tape and he said, oh, my God, I was feeding this information to her. She gave it back to me. So it seemed like a real confession. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, I mean, there are a lot of things that we have to change, right? We should be banning deception. We should have limited amount of time for when person is interrogated, like, Mm -hmm. in fact, past two hours it's pretty much been shown that the reliability just is is out the window. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then, of course, we have to be recording the whole procedure because we can uncover all kinds of things like this, even when it's unintentional. Sure. It's it's kind of hard to believe that in this day and age that those, that that simple thing of recording of a interrogation isn't just, that's what we do. Oh, often it's multi-year efforts for us to pass a law. To just record interrogations. I mean, All- to think that like just now we've finally gotten many states to, for police brutality, to stop chokeholds. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, how is that even like a thing when I'm taking somebody in for a counterfeit $20 bill or whatever? Mm-hmm. It would just seem, pardon me, to me that 
okay, we're taking some, right. like they have to write it down. Right. The, the um, perpetrator or what have you has to write down their confession. So why wouldn't the cops have to be taped? It just seems like I could do anything. I would be the most amazing cop mm-hmm. and be like, yep, Katie said she did it. I mean, she just obviously stole a bunch of stuff. Right. right. And, and then if it. you have only people on the jury who are inclined to believe whatever an officer says, you know, you're done. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of this is because the people that you're talking about are mo- usually disenfranchised and don't have, they're not organized. They don't have lobbying efforts. I mean, the, you know, the police are very powerful in the states mm-hmm. and locally. And I mean, and, Absolutely. Uh, you know, so I just think there's, there's much, it just seems I like. I definitely think it's more complex right, than I mean, what I, I just said. Well, it's hard <laughs> because it's like, if we look at like, you know, the quota system in New York, it's like, you know, what is like, if. If like whole and Rebecca can talk about what was really going on, but like if whole communities of color are the target, like I guess what is the lobbying effort? You know what I'm saying? Like who is it to speak? Because it right. is like a, you know, maybe you could talk right. about it. like it's a whole you know right target. Right. I mean you know I mean first of all New York banned quotas uh, in 2010 by law. They weren't Ooh. supposed to do it. Um, but even so, you know, uh, three days into Trump being elected. A massive class action suit was settled here in New York City, which got no play because it was all about the election. Mm-hmm. Um, 900,000 false arrests that were based on a quote, an unofficial quota system in New York. Unofficial because it had already been in a outlawed. Year? In a, over a seven year period. 900,000 false incredible. arrests. And where were they being sent to meet their quotas? Not the Upper East Side, not Park Slope. They were being sent to, and there was actually an inspector, like one of the supervising cops who was talking to his officers. He was secretly being taped by, I think, some very courageous cops Mm -hmm. who were cops of color, actually, who started to tape this, who revealed, you know, his his own boss is saying, and and I don't need to tell you where to go. Mm -hmm. We're talking 14 to 20-year-old black men. Go. Mm -hmm. Go to those neighborhoods. And make the numbers. So people would just be standing on the street and you're just arrested. Literally. Just arrested for, right. you know, just, just disorderly conduct or, or you know. living your life. Yeah. But Correct. you are of color. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and so I think, you know, wrongful convictions is obviously a unique horror. But I mm. think it's also horrifying how we're just going about justice in this country, mm-hmm. really injustice, right? I mean, why do we have a system that's pushing people into communities to pick people up. I mean, I was always struck by, you know, the Times years ago did a series on stop and frisk and they followed one young black child, I think he was 15, mm-hmm. who had been stopped 30 times in a year going to church, to the gym and to school. Aye. 30 mm-hmm. times. I mean, that's, it is like being terrorized. Mm-hmm. And, right. and so it's not just that we're, you know, ensnaring the innocent, which is horrifying enough, but we're actually demonizing people and we're terrorizing them Mm -hmm. and you know and that's why I mean I think in many ways a lot of people in the movement have been like we're thrilled for this moment that people Mm -hmm. are out in the streets Mm -hmm. but I mean frankly this should have happened so long I mean this has been American justice and it's also what we criminalize we criminalize poverty we criminalize mental illness we Mm -hmm. criminalize addiction you know this isn't how other countries do this Mm -hmm. and so you know I think you know even when we talk about guilty if you're guilty of whatever, disorderly conduct, jumping a turnstile, criminal trespass. 
I mean, all of these things are, it's criminalizing poverty. Mm-hmm. And Well, I think it, I mean, it wasn't in the, in the chief of police, I think it was in the 90s, who was brought in in New York City. I mean, the concept was that if you curb sort of that petty crime, that yes. more violent crime will follow. If you Broken like, windows yeah, policing. Yeah. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess that, that has really... Um, massively negative consequences. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. And and actually... Was it Bratton? Was he the chief Bratton of police? Was, yes. Said, and what, police? you know, I think James Q. Wilson was one of the architects. I think that he actually ultimately kind of felt misunderstood, actually, in terms mm-hmm. of what he said. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I think all of that aside, I mean, we have, you know, the system is working as it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. problem is that it these shouldn't be our values, right? right? And I think that, you know, and I think that we are all raised by the media. So, I mean, you know, we're all raised to believe that, you know, people in jail should be in jail. Mm-hmm. We don't kind of, nobody has a critical look at this. Like, why are we criminalizing certain of these? Why why do we like criminalize things like jumping a turnstile? It's, you know, I mean, there are other ways of handling this mm-hmm. stuff. And that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. And yet we turn a blind eye oftentimes to domestic violence or mm-hmm. sexual assault or sexual harassment. I mean, um, it's, I, I think, I think it's right. I mean, really... it was fascinating to watch the Epstein, you know, docu-series, right? And you have what? the I hardly there, watched right? any of that <laughs> yeah. all right. the time, None of that every ever, second no. podcast. <laughs> series. I think yes. we're going to wrap up this portion of it. I mean, there's so many aspects to this issue and I um we could just, do like a 10-parter. Yeah, we really we could. could. We might. But um <laughs> I just think it's so great the work that you guys are doing in the Innocent and the and the Innocence Project. I mean, it's got to be rewarding uh but also really challenging because you sort of see the inner workings of things that a lot most of us don't see. Like you said, I mean, there's kind of a basic assumption that if you're in jail you deserve to be there and it's easy to sort of or if you've been accused and taken to trial Mm -hmm. that you are you know guilty right right but the work that you're doing i mean it's literally changing people's lives so um on an individual level but also on a on a policy level i mean and that fight is probably going to be outlive all of us the policy stuff is complicated because i think at the end of the day we need cultural change Mm -hmm. right i mean i can pass as many laws as i can pass we've passed many laws and ultimately you need the culture to shift Mm -hmm. yeah they say i mean they do say like the culture change usually happens first like people are out on the streets like what's happening now i mean civil rights laws didn't pass until people got out in the streets and were like fuck you we got to change this so that's kind of Mm -hmm. you're kind of seeing that happen now and it is I think the first time that I can remember in my lifetime where people have actually questioned the fundamental um, sort of value system of police departments. Um, I, I don't know what change will come out of that, but just or even their their existence, like, is that even valid? Um, so, I, you know, I don't know what will what will come out of that, but. But um, you are really doing amazing work. Yeah. And now we will shift gears, I think, yeah. and ask, I think I'll ask Rebecca first. Why not, Miss Policy Changer, Miss Lawmaker? <laughs> what is what are you currently obsessed with? Oh, actually, I think you oh, both, both might you have, both have you both yeah. might have. Did you collaborate on this? We collaborated. We did. <laughs> did you take a polygraph? Is this truthful? Are you guys being honest? Are Go. you manipulating us? <laughs> Don't look to the left. Oh, they looked at each other. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's not true. Well, we were like, what are we obsessed with? Yeah. I was thinking, we were like, were you are obsessed with being younger because that was when we had time to do stuff. I think we, we <laughs> used to. Right. Um, Wait, what? We did. We, um, cause these jobs like take over your lives. Uh-huh. But we used to um, go boxing together. Which <gasps> was, oh, like, wow. I love she boxing. likes boxing. Yeah. Where did you guys go? 
Kingsway. Kingsway. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You guys are scrappy. Like, really? yeah. like, <laughs> like we're wow, not like Rumble. <laughs> like, I love I like it. I like to Arnold Schwarzenegger is our partner. But <laughs> boxing, that's so, awesome. So yeah, tell us about that. You, did you box each other? And <laughs> who won? Yeah. Who won? I don't know that we were that advanced. That anybody was sort of like, you know, clear winner. Yeah. It yeah. was more sort of like yeah. clear stumbler. That. I don't know. But, um, but we, yeah, it was a blast. We that, had this yeah. incredible coach. Yeah. Mama T. Mama T. We loved her so much. She was a, oh, a woman teacher. That's yeah. cool. She, in fact, has her own. Yeah. Women's World of Boxing. That's her. She started her gym. Yeah, oh, started so her gym. Cool. She's amazing. You might want to have her on the podcast. I'd yeah. love yeah. to have Mama T. Mama T sounds good. <laughs> we worshipped her. We Aww. used to. It was a struggle. We we would get there yeah, early we, in the morning. We there was a a free supply samples of Axe hair gel. Oh yeah, right? like every, they were always <laughs> like, do you want wanted. more Axe? And we were like, not really. But oh my but, god, that's definitely in my dating um, app. Profiles. Yeah, sure. must if, use if you have Axe. Axe body spray, I'm in. And, or Dracar Noir. Oh, God. Oh, right. yeah. That was oh in God. high school. That right. was all the like, like, I can smell it now. Yeah. yeah. Like, if I oh pass the guy so that had that on, musky. I, like, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Oh, them. my God. 20 years later. You're so like, oh, yeah. so visceral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, wow. boxing, have you guys been doing anything like that during this time? Because don't you feel so much younger now? I mean, I did. I did have a. Uh, a pandemic purchase like when it first went down I was like I'm getting a Peloton and so we ordered it and yeah. it came to the house and it sat there for like two months oh yeah but then and, you, you but then I got on because I, I I was you know talking it was one of these icebreaker things and they were like what's your pandemic purchase and I, I said that I got a Peloton they were like how is it and I was like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so it like shamed me to go right. turn it on right. I feel um, like you shouldn't have confessed to that like I feel I like you should honest. be like oh Oh, peanut butter right out of the jar. Something like that. Something you've done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, like, it was. Get it on was, the Peloton, then it brag. Was Mine is more pathetic, yeah. which is that I did buy a heavy bag and put it on my roof oh. in Brooklyn. And what that required was getting sand so that it would like oh, mm-hmm. yeah. in the stand, yeah. uh-huh. So which was hilarious because I had to order like 50 <laughs> oh, pound man. bags of sand off of Amazon and like, not that I, not that I, you know, not that I'm a big Amazon person, but <laughs> they're actually order. doing, I, I, I feel the same way, but they're actually giving back a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually kind of they impressed. gave me sand and they gave me 250 <laughs> pounds of sand that I carried up in like 50 pound like bags because wow. I'm going to walk up. That and so enough. by the time it was over, I was like, I that was my done. workout like for the for year. The year. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm done. So oh there is a heavy bag Wait, up there. So it's there. It's there. You can come back. Yeah. We can relive our killer cookie days. <laughs> I think that sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect place to thank you guys so much yes, for, coming for coming and on. keep fighting for justice and um i i know i speak for katie we are super impressed yeah and thank you really you guys are doing amazing work thank you so much for having us thank Thank you 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 didn't drink enough though but whatever we're on it i'm not gonna judge you (laughs) yes you will yes i will